Welcome to this episode of Church Grammar. On today's episode, I talked to Ross Inman. We talk about his new book, Christian Philosophy as a Way of Life. We talk about the relationship between philosophy, theology, and biblical interpretation, some ways that philosophy has been thought about in the past that can help us think about it in the present, and just some practical benefits for how philosophy can help our spiritual life and the way that we think about God. So I hope you'll enjoy my conversation with Ross. As always, we are brought to you by the Christian Standard Bible. You can go to csbible.com to find out more about that English Bible translation. You can also check out the offer that Lifeway and the Christian Standard Bible are giving to Church Grammar listeners. If you go to lifeway.com, you can get up to three CSB Bibles for 40% off by using the promo code CGCSB at checkout. That's CG as in Church Grammar, CGCSB in the promo code at lifeway.com, and you can get up to 40% off on three CSB Bibles. So check that out. And now my conversation with Ross Inman. But first, the man, the myth, the legend, no big deal. I am joined by my buddy, Ross Inman. Ross, you and I have uh, had many deep chats on your back porch over the years, and uh, mm. these are, they're always interesting and encouraging, so I thought, why not do that in public? Amen. Yeah, verily <laughs> and amen. I agree. <laughs> well, maybe some of those things, won't. we won't talk about all the things that they are not all going to be public, but maybe some things we could talk about that we could make public. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. That might be the way to do it. So, well, you just wrote a book uh, with Baker called Christian Philosophy as a Way of Life, an Invitation to Wonder. So just want to introduce people to the ideas that you have here. I mean, there's a lot of really good, we talked about this before the podcast, but um, I think you do a great job of weaving in the historical, the theological, the philosophical, and even the quote unquote practical, right? Which is what everybody's always asking. How is philosophy practical? I'm teaching on the Trinity, you know, students will will ask, well, what does this mean for my worship? What does this mean for my daily life? And sometimes I get annoyed by that question uh, because I'm like, hey, knowledge is good for its own sake, right? But you do a great job of of showing uh, really why it does matter. So we'll get into that a little bit. I did want to start asking a little bit about your journey because I I know you well enough to know you have had um, somewhat of a journey in your own sort of theological and philosophical thought. Um, So kind of what got you to the point where you are now in terms of just some major shifts in your own thinking over the years? Yeah, thanks, Brandon. Uh, it's great to be with you, man. I'm an avid listener of Church Grammar. Um, and I may be the only philosopher listening, so it's really, it's really nice. You know, <laughs> it's nice to represent here. But uh, no, uh, yeah, I so I I kind of stumbled into the study of philosophy. Um, I was a new believer, and um, really undergoing a kind of existential crisis with um, how do I know Christianity is true. Um, uh, it trusted the Lord, but, you know, there were a lot of questions swirling around in my mind. And, um, I stepped into my first philosophy class in college at a Christian college. And, um, it just, I learned a posture, uh, in that class. My, my prof modeled for me a posture of, uh, a faith seeking understanding sort of posture that it was okay to strive to understand what it is that I, I believe on the basis of, uh, scriptural testimony. And that really opened up a whole world for me, a a way of kind of approaching my faith uh, from a place of intellectual, you know, substance and depth. Um, And then uh, 
not necessarily very engaged with the Christian tradition up to that point. Um, that would come much later. But um, yeah, so I, I went on and uh, felt the Lord's leading to teach philosophy and uh, in a ministry context. And so uh, that's where I am today. I'm Associate Professor of Philosophy uh, here at Southeastern uh, Baptist Theological Seminary. And uh, my interests have, you know, I've... <sighs> I'd be pegged today as an analytic philosopher, um, but uh, you know I have a deep interest in the history of philosophy, the history of philosophical theology, the history of metaphysics, um, how theology and uh, philosophy, in particular metaphysics, dovetail and and um, intersect with one another. So um, yeah, I I have uh, benefited greatly from uh, reading widely uh, in the Christian tradition, probably since 2019. I've really uh, taking a deep dive into uh, the historical contours of uh, the intersection of philosophy and theology in the Christian tradition. And uh, man, I, I tell you, it's just been uh, incredibly, incredibly fruitful and enlightening and encouraging uh, to me to really uh, draw upon the ancients and the medievals, the reformers, uh, post-reformation period. Just There's just so much there to be mined and to be uh, shaped by. It's almost like I mm -hmm. want to apprentice myself to them all. But um, yeah, it's been neat. It's been a, a season of discovery for me, just sort of a, a posture of leaning into and thinking along with uh, the great tradition on, on some of these things. And in this case, uh, the nature of philosophy. Yeah. So if you could, I'm putting you on the spot here. If you could say one major thing in the last four or five years that you've read in the Christian tradition, a particular idea or something that really just shifted the way you thought or or even just enhanced in some way you, something you felt was weak in your own thinking, what is one thing you'd say is maybe the most fruitful of your reading in the last several years of the Christian tradition? Oh, that's really good. Well, I would say um, I started teaching a grad level class on Anselm, and so uh, reading uh, just about his entire corpus uh, with students. And, you know, you can't read almost the entirety of what Anselm wrote in community without learning his posture, without seeing his posture on display. Um, and uh, that's where I really caught a vision of what uh, the Christian philosophical theological life would look like uh, as embodied in Anselm. Uh, I just don't see him making these uh, clear delineations between um, certain disciplines, as we tend to think of disciplines today, they're sort of like disciplinary natural kinds, right? Philosophy is this one thing that's got these hard and fast, rigid disciplinary boundaries and theology is this hard and fast, uh, other discipline and, and they don't sort of overlap in any way. And, mm -hmm. um, you just don't find that with many of these medievals and Selma in particular, uh, but also Augustine, uh, Scotus, uh, Aquinas, um, Henry of Ghent, Richard of St. Victor, I mean, they are uh, seamlessly interweaving um, what we would refer to as philosophical inquiry in with their theological inquiry. And I just love it. I mean, it is just, yeah. it's so much fun. It is, um, it keeps keeps me humble, keeps me on my toes, but it's, it's really rich, man. I'd say just immersing myself in a single thinker like Anselm, really learning from him um, and learning where, he, you know, he, he has his excesses and abuses in some areas, but just apprenticing yourself to a, to a thinker in a way of, a way of uh, approaching the Christian faith that has just been really impactful for me. I've since taught that class two times here. So it's been a, it's been a sweet, uh, sweet journey. 
Yeah, I think we I think you see that come out in this book, for example, even, you know, I think in some ways. So let's talk about it a little bit. You have this uh, Christian philosophy as a way of life. So if you could give kind of a thesis statement and abstract, a kind of big picture, um, how is philosophy a way of life? How are you defining philosophy here? What are some kind of contributions you're trying to make on the front end there? Sweet, sweet. Yeah, I'd say big picture. I think there are two main parts to the book, um, if I could... Uh, kind of uh, divide them. So I think that part one of the book would be um, a basic introduction to a more classical approach to uh, philosophy, Christian philosophy in particular, uh, as an entire um, truth-oriented way of being in the world, right? Um, less as a sort of subject matter you study um, and more of a, of, of a way of being oriented to reality, uh, in all of its, you know, truth, goodness, and beauty. Um, I talk about wonder as being the lifeblood of philosophy. That's a very classical notion, actually predates Christianity, but um, but I argue in the book, it's uh, for Christian philosophy, wonder is an integral dimension to the Christian philosophical life uh, as well. So part one of the book is basically just introducing readers to this more classical, classically oriented view of uh, philosophy as an entire way of life or a mode of life, a way of being in the world um, that's propelled and sustained by wonder. And obviously for a Christian philosopher, it's going to be propelled and sustained by the wonder of creation itself, but also creation's architect, right? Leading us to the contemplation of God ultimately. And the second part of the book uh, is, is why the philosophical life conceived as a way of life that I unpack in the first part is one of the most practical ways that you could live your life. And that, that sounds uh, completely absurd to most people today. And I try to, I try to draw out why that sounds uh, so absurd to say that uh, the philosophical life is one of the most practical ways you can live your life today. Um, and so along the way, um, I basically try to interact with why uh, many Christians will balk at that statement what is what sorts of uh, philosophical assumptions are behind what I call practicality questions? Uh, this is the second part of the book. Um, questions like, you know, how is philosophy at all relevant for my life, right? Or, or um, what does philosophy have to do with uh, ministry and discipleship and mission, right, in the world? So what I try to do, Brandon, is I try to un unearth, right, do some excavation that these kinds of questions, these are well-meaning questions for sure. But they really do rely on some significant philosophical assumptions about value, about what we are as human beings and how God has created us to thrive and to flourish in his world, uh, and about the life of the mind in general. So I try, to, I try to unearth these assumptions. I think there are four assumptions, if I'm remembering right. And then I try to critique each of these assumptions that lurk behind these kinds of questions. And I think the genesis of a book like this has really just been the classroom, honestly. Right. Um, in the classroom and just, uh, you know, the first time I, I told my, my in-laws that I was studying philosophy and they sort of said, what, what are you going to do with that? You know, how's that going to, how's that going to make any money? And, uh, and uh, so uh, philosophy, I think as I, as I argue, uh, in the book, or I mentioned in the book, has a kind of a public relations problem today, <laughs> right? Um, I think uh, many people have, uh, they're either, either completely ignorant about what philosophy is and what it's for, or they have a rather, as they say, uh, rather cartoonish 
view of philosophers as sort of relics of a bygone era, right? They're sort of mm-hmm. so out of touch with reality. What are they really good for anyway, you know? And and uh, we could talk about specific examples, but I'd say that generally that's the, 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 the structure of the book. Part one, introducing people to a general, more classical view of philosophy as a way of life. Part two, interacting with these practicality questions in detail and uh, critiquing them and trying to motivate the claim that seems very implausible that the philosophical life as a Christian is one of the most practical ways you can live your life. Um, why that may not be so implausible after all. Um, so that's the general structure of the book. I mean, you want to dive into uh, to specifics? I'm I'm happy to do that. Yeah, let's let's spend a little bit of time with that. So I'll read I'll read the four uh, driving assumptions that you list, and I want to read just a couple sentences because I think you kind of tie these things together, and then I'll just have you kind of respond a little bit more broadly about philosophy as a way of life, wonder, and how that plays into this. So you've got these four driving assumptions you say that often uh, hide behind these practicality questions about philosophy. So one, philosophy is good for nothing. Uh, Two, if an activity or pursuit is valuable, it's only valuable for the sake of something else. Uh, An activity is practical only if it produces useful, measurable outcomes, which is the bane of my existence sometimes in teaching (laughs) theology too, you know. Um, And the Christian life and ministry have nothing to do with the philosophical life and the cultivation of the intellect. So here's, I think, where you start to answer some of that on page 18. Uh, You say the philosophical quest is a uniquely human quest. Humans are set apart from all other creatures by our build, our built-in appetite for truth, for meaning, and for properly understanding reality. We are meaning-seeking animals in that we strive by nature to make sense of things, ultimately for the purpose of living well. And we strive to make sense not just of some part of reality in isolation from everything else, such as geography or economics. Rather, we naturally seek to make sense of the totality of things and how everything fits together for the purpose of living well. And you say that's basically how people have understood what philosophy is. Right. So maybe maybe flesh some of that out in terms of this sort of us being meaning seeking people, us all sort of asking those questions, whether you're a Christian or not, about what's the purpose of life? Why are we here? What is reality? What is true? Uh, How does Christian philosophy, maybe in particular, and the vision you're setting out here, answer some of these questions and get us down the road a little bit? Cool. Yeah. Happy to happy to elaborate. Um, Yeah. So I think a pervasive theme throughout the, the little book is is is. Um, your view of philosophy, its relevance, its value, whether it has any value at all or whether it only has, say, instrumental value, it's only valuable for the sake of something else, like leading your coworker to Christ or preaching well or something like that, is really going to be dependent upon an anthropology, right? There's, there's just so much comes down to what are we and what are we for? Right. What are the sort of natural God-given capacities that he has created us with, the fulfillment of which, you know, causes us to lead thriving, flourishing human lives, right? And so um, what I argue in the book, and I think this is a fairly classical notion, that, you know, we were created by God uh, with uh, both a, uh, a hunger for goodness, right? The will is a kind of appetite that reaches out uh, towards the good. But we are also created with an intellect, right? As image bearers, we're created by uh, by God with an intellect that reaches out towards the true. And so the intellect is kind of a, an intellectual appetite for truth, right? It feeds upon truth and it strives and hungers for truth, right? The fulfillment of these two capacities, I think, are just part and parcel. The, these are essential ingredients uh, of what 
a human life well lived is right. Um, if to be uh, to live well as a human, it's going to involve uh, fulfilling all of our God given capacities and uh, abilities that He has given us to fulfill. Right, uh, and I, the way I put it in the book is, you know, no no one's going around asking, you know, but what is eating good for? Right, um, you know, no, we have a natural hunger. It's a biological hunger to set to satisfy, and satisfying that hunger is is good. It's a good thing mm-hmm. for its own sake. Life is a biological life is a good for its own sake. Uh, but there's something about like fulfilling the God given capacity to to feed upon the truth, right? That we kind of balk at in Christian context sometimes. That just seems like a like an optional leather trim, right? A luxury rather than a necessity. And uh, so what I'm trying to argue in the book is a lot of this, your view of philosophy, the philosophical life, um, devoting yourself to uh, living along the grain of the re- of reality um, and all of its truth, goodness, and beauty, it really does presuppose that a view of what it means to be human. You were made for that. You were made to feed upon truth and beauty and goodness. And that's intrinsically valuable to fulfill those capacities that God has given you in the same way that it's intrinsically valuable to fulfill your biological capacities, right? To, to eat, to sleep, and to live in community. So we are social animals, uh, as Aristotle put it, or political animals, as Aristotle put it. And I think that's, that's a, a deeply uh, rich notion that it is part of our nature, right? To reach out and live and form social communities. And I don't think we need to be taught to do that. So what I'm arguing in the book as well, Brandon, is that uh, it's part of our nature as uh, divine image bearers, as creatures with an intellect and a will to uh, hunger for truth and goodness, right? And we don't have to be taught how to do those things, right? We philosophize, we, we strive to make sense of things because of what we are, right? We are meaning-seeking animals, as I put it in the book. Um, so uh, to hinder, right, to hinder the, the pursuit and fulfillment of our natural God-given capacities would be as detrimental, right, to our natures as human beings as, say, uh, hindering our our uh, striving to eat, uh, fulfill our natural hunger, right? To, to eat, right? We can fail to eat and that will be detrimental to our, our, our being as biological creatures. So uh, in the same way, you know, we find ourselves naturally striving to make sense of the world, to philosophize, as I put it in the book. Um, we can either do that, f- strive to fulfill that capacity or not, but in the same way that you know, uh, not eating is going to be detrimental to your, to your existence as a biological creature. Well, not feeding upon the truth is also going to be detrimental to your, your existence as an intellectual creature as well. Mm -hmm. So a lot of this, I think just boils down to what are we and, um, whether philosophy is valuable or not as a way of life really depends upon what we are. And, and I think once you sort of bring in some rich theological anthropology into, into the equation, well, then uh, striving to orient yourself to the true, the good, and the beautiful um, for the sake of living well is really going to be part and parcel of the good life for the Christian. And ultimately, it's going to be striving to align yourself with the true, the good, and the beautiful as, as it is in Christ. 
that's going to be part and parcel of of flourishing or living uh, living well in Christ. So, um, yeah, that's uh, that's what I'd say about that. <laughs> you really, you're like, am I satisfied with that? Do I want a little bit yeah. more? No, it's great. Um, okay, my, one of my favorite parts of the book um, is uh, chapter six and and kind of onward there a little bit. You talk about uh, remedies for our existential ailments, which I think is just such a great way to talk about the sickness of our soul. Um, and you talk about this, you said, you know, if lady philosophy were to grace us with a visit today and take note of our existential ailments, what might her gentler and stronger remedies be for our sickly soul condition? So good. Um, so when you're, when you're thinking about that, I mean, I read that and I kind of took away, it was almost like, oh, you're making like a, a deep, rich argument for spiritual disciplines and for, you know, living in the way of Christ. And, you know, it's all, it's almost like, I say this as a compliment. It's almost like you're like, there's actually some really simple answers that the Christian life gives you, you know, and, and that's where philosophy kind of comes in and how you philosophize in real life. So what are some of those um, remedies that Lady Wisdom would give us for some of our some of our issues that we face? And how can how can philosophy help us to to live in the way of Christ the way that that we're supposed to and in a way that gives us flourishing? Perfect. Great. Yeah. So let me let me take a step back and just talk a little bit about um, philosophy is a way of life in antiquity in general, right? So um, I try to distinguish in the book between philosophy as a moment and philosophy as a way of life, right? So yeah. just motivating the idea of what, what, what makes one a reader, right, as a way of life versus just maybe reading something offhand or temporarily or as, as a moment rather than a way of life. What makes one a runner or a musician, right, involves how they structure their entire life and the aims and the goals that they aim towards uh, in life uh, as a whole, right? Uh, so playing, playing, it, playing an instrument uh, one-off on one particular day of the week uh, doesn't make you a musician, right? Uh, it's a whole way of being in the world, right? And for the ancients, as well as the medievals, philosophy is a kind of a life orientation, a way of being in the world that, that, kind of spreads its canopy over everything, um, over um, the, the ordinary rhythms of one's life. Uh, it's certainly not just a subject matter. After you finish the, the philosophical lecture, right, you sort of stop doing philosophy, right? It's sort of humming in the background of your ordinary existence. Um, this is how uh, philosophy was understood in, in all of these ancient philosophical schools in Athens. So I'm thinking of like Plato's Academy, Aristotle's Lyceum, Epicurus's garden, Zeno's porch, right? So all of these were were um, representative of various ways of life, philosophical ways of life that were marked by uh, spiritual practices or spiritual exercises, right? Um, so um, overall, philosophy was understood uh, in a kind of as a therapeutic enterprise, right? So, and I mentioned that in the book, and we, we think of therapeutic today, and we think of like this sort of thin subjective notion about like feeling good about yourself or feeling better about things. Right. But for them, it was, it had to do with the objective health of the soul, right. Whether the soul was rightly ordered and harmonious and, and properly structured. Right. So philosophy for them was truly medicinal in the sense of um, helping you uh, order, order your soul in the way that it's supposed to be ordered in your life uh, as a result, right? So Martha Nussbaum, 
she calls this uh, this this view of philosophy as therapeutic was so pervasive in the ancient world. She calls it a, a, a medical model of philosophizing. Um, you know, you'll find this uh, in the Stoics. You'll find this in the Epicureans. You'll find this uh, amongst the Platonists, the Aristotelians. Um, this was a widespread view of, of philosophy as uh, therapeutic in this in this particular sense. But um, depending on who you ask, so I try in the book to to give the reader a basic introduction to how some people like Pierre Hadot, John Cooper think about philosophy as a way of life. Uh, according to Hadot, and I'm with Hadot on this, um, these quote unquote spiritual practices were actually part of the philosophical life. They were sort of an essential core ingredient to what it meant to live philosophically. They were indispensable. Um, so living philosophically, if Hadot's right, for uh, these uh, classical thinkers wasn't just um, cultivating reason or using reason to grasp truth, right? Um, one does get that sense uh, in John Cooper's understanding of philosophy as a way of life, but for but for Hadot, philosophy was more holistic. That was a part of it. It was actually uh, living in line with uh, truth by way of reason, but there was a lot more that need to be in place for one to actually like see reality properly by way of reason. There, need, there was sort of moral and spiritual preconditions that had to be uh, in place for one to actually see the world, uh, see what is true and good and actually beautiful and live in, in line with it. So uh, these were like some of these exercises, and again, these were ubiquitous um, across various ancient philosophical schools, like reading, uh, attention, keeping uh, attention, listening, memorization, Socratic dialogue. I even talk about friendship in the book was a deeply philosophical exercise that um, these exercises were designed to like um, make the soul more apt to see and, and align itself with reality. Uh, it's a very interesting concept that um, this idea of ascesis, right, soul ascesis, that there's a kind of training that the soul can undergo that will will make it more likely for it to track uh, what's true and good and beautiful. So the, the main thing about antiquity that I want to say that was picked up by many Christian philosophers and thinkers in antiquity is that uh, the the state of your moral character largely can either help or hinder your ability, uh, reason's ability to actually track truth. Uh, and you find this in the church fathers, as you know, um, uh, I'm thinking of like uh, Gregory Nazianzen about his, uh, doesn't belong to everyone to philosophize. And then he goes on to give this sort of list about, uh, you know, those who are being purified or are in the process of being purified Right. So the, the moral preconditions for reasons actually functioning the way it's supposed to function uh, matters. These things actually matter. And, and as these ancients were thinking about it, these these exercises were supposed to do some of that soul sculpting. Right. Um, making the soul less dependent upon irrational passions or, in this case, uh, the, the passions of the flesh for these early Christian thinkers um, that actually cloud reason and, and darken reason, right? And twist the natural function of the intellect and uh, to be disordered, right? And so um, what I'm trying to do here is just to, to say that philosophy, they were had a more working class view of philosophy as much broader 
than just a sort of academic discipline you study. It did involve the application of the mind, uh, research, investigation, the use of reason. Absolutely. That was a part of what set a philosophical life apart from, say, a musical life or an athletic life, right? So reason had a lot to do with it, but it, it wasn't this the the only game in town in the sense that uh, the philosophical life, as I say in the book, is the purely reason-driven life, right? So these exercises played a very big role, um, at least by my lights, and I'm with Hado on this, in uh, being an essential ingredient in the philosophical uh, life for these for these ancients. And I try to give an example of this, and you mentioned, you, you give the quote from about lady philosophy, you know, this idea of philosophy as therapeutic um, is is really represented well in the Christian tradition. I mean, Boethius's Consolation of Philosophy is a perfect example right. of Boethius appropriating this um, view of philosophy as therapeutic, um, but also doing it in such a way, like appropriate it in such a way that it's distinctively, although not explicitly, Christian. Right, um, but he is talking about God as the, as the greatest and highest good, the summum bonum. These other sort of visions of the good life are false visions. These are side tracks, he calls them, uh, to the flourishing life. Um, and so, philosophy can actually help us uh, uh, kind of be first aid to the mind's eye. Right, when our eyes are the the eyes of our soul are fixed upon false visions of the good life. Right, philosophy can actually serve as a remedy to either fix our weak eyes of the soul or redirect them, right? So uh, this therapeutic concept of philosophy is, is, uh, is there in the Christian tradition. And that's really what I try to do after I do- talk about Boethius is just to sort of, sort of say, what, what are our contemporary ailments, right? And how might living philosophically as a Christian uh, provide remedies for those particular uh, ailments, but that's a little bit of the backdrop. Backdrop of like, what do we mean when we talk about remedies and ailments, right? Um, and I just give two two quick ones in that, um, which I won't unpack. I'll leave it to the to the reader to to read the book and, and check that out. But I talk about our our ailing sight and attention. Well, first, our our metaphysical and moral vertigo, right? Um, we are metaphysically and morally disoriented uh, in our contemporary culture. We are uh, slowly losing our ability to to see reality in its proper light and to live along the grain of reality. Um, and we're losing we're losing our ability uh, to to pay attention uh, to things that are ultimately worthy uh, of our attention and our moral care as well. So those are just I, I think I give two. Uh, Two of those uh, ailments, contemporary ailments, that have been exacerbated by um, certain digital technologies, I think, but and how living philosophically as a Christian can can provide remedies uh, for those two particular ailments that are unique to our our contemporary situation. Yeah, that's really helpful. I think even your little section on friendship is so good. I mean, obviously, we can yeah, like you said, we can. I want people to actually go and read it. But you talk about the distinction between friendships of pleasure and friendships of virtue. He basically say friendships of pleasure is like what kids do. You know, it's like, oh, we both like football, so we're buddies. But as soon as you stop liking football, you don't get to hang out anymore. You know, but friendships of virtue are, are, are deeper. They're self-sacrificial. They're not just for your own kind of mutual benefit. So, um, or you talk about, you know, today it's digital friendships. You know, what, what can you do for me? We follow each other on social media. Uh, we have each other on our podcasts. 
uh, for example, you know, but I think you and I have, we don't have just a friendship of pleasure, right? I said, we, we have a, we have a friendship of virtue. Well, I'm still trying to I. figure that out. Yeah. So, <laughs> no, yeah. No, no, that's funny. You mentioned that because I, I just think if you mention friendship, right. To the contemporary person, they would think, what does friendship have to do with philosophy? Right. Mm-hmm. And, and if you think about friendships, specifically spiritual friendship as a spiritual exercise, a way of cultivating a life with another person that will actually help keep you more in lockstep with the grain of reality, what truly is and what's truly good in Christ. It can be deeply philosophical, right? Um, Cultivating virtuous friendships in Christ can actually serve as life-giving remedies that kind of dampen the allure of rival visions of the good life, right? If I'm, 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 my life is intertwined with another who is constantly speaking into my life, you know, um, giving me a potent doses of truth as revealed in scripture or whatnot. Um, that can serve as a life-giving preventative and a corrective, right. To, yeah. uh, to rival ways of living that I can be deeply, uh, it can help, help me hold fast to what's true and good more, more so than if I lacked those uh, social communities and it was trying to sort of do it on my own, that kind of thing. So I yeah. think even just friendship in philosophy in general is going to strike many contemporary readers. It's just very odd, but it is a, it is a rich, life-giving um, remedy for living philosophically uh, as a Christian that I just think we can't neglect uh, to our peril. Yeah. Well, if, for what it's worth to readers and listeners, I mean, we live across the country. You know, we talk every once in a while, text every once in a while. But anytime that you and I have been together, uh, we'll goof around and make stupid jokes and all that kind of stuff. But I feel like you're always like wanting to have meaningful conversation about life and, and ministry and family. So I give you credit, like for readers, Dr. Ross Enman lives what he writes. So um, you're a good kind of friend like that. So um, let's, I want to talk a little bit about, you know, you talked about philosophy being uh, pushed off as this other discipline over here. Uh, but obviously somebody like you, you're a, you're a faithful Christian. You, you like theology, you like reading your Bible, you like interpreting the text properly. Um, so what are some of the ways that, that you would say philosophy, at least in the way that you're posing it, or maybe even in some ways, kind of the more, the, the more um, separate discipline that we talk about today, how do these things all kind of go together? How, how does, how does philosophy influence theology and how you look at the Bible? How does, how does the Bible and theology influence the way you think about philosophy? Like, how do you think more broadly about how these disciplines come together. Uh, and that could be good and bad, right? There's probably examples of both. So, so how would you, how do you think through some of those kind of things? Wow. Yeah. Um, so I, I would say, and I try to make, I try to emphasize this uh, in the book that what it means to live philosophically as a Christian. So, so living a distinctively Christian philosophical way of life is obviously going to involve theological content, right? That sets it apart from, say, an Epicurean way of life or a Stoic way of life. And the way that I put this in the book is these involve very different existential maps, right? And as I say there, that uh, maps are ultimately for the for the sake of getting somewhere, right? Of navigating uh, the world accurately and successfully. And uh, what map you have, really, in terms of like, what is ultimately real? And what, what is the good life? Like, what are the ends ultimately worth pursuing? 
is going to be filled out by different ways of life, right? So um, like the, the a stoic way of life, you might say, would involve a very different existential map that the, the person committed to a stoic way of life is going to be committed to, right? So a stoic, I'm thinking of like Cicero, Seneca, Epictetus, Marcus Aurelius, these kinds of ancient thinkers. So uh, the material world is all there is, right? There is this sort of uh, principle of order and rationality that guides and pervades the world, but there's no triune God that exists. Um, all things are not to him and from him and through him, right? Um, uh, n- none of that, right? He has no, he has not created uh, this sort of logos, has not created human beings with a particular end in mind to know him, to love him, and to enjoy him forever, right? So uh, how one lives philosophically, whether as a Stoic, an Epicurean, or a Christian, is obviously going to be settled by specific beliefs about the world, right? And I think theology really brings to, brings some, uh, some concrete content to a Christian philosophical way of life in terms of what is ultimately real, what are we, what are we for, what is the good life, um, and where are we going? Like, what is what are our ends? So I think theology, I mean, a Christian philosophical way of life uh, isn't Christian without distinctively theological content filling in some of those tenets that set it apart from, say, a Platonic way of life or a Stoic way of life or an Epicurean way of life. And I think that's exactly what some of these early Christians, um, like uh, even Clement of Alexandria, or Justin Martyr, when they talk about Christianity as the true philosophy, right? They, they think that it get, Christianity brings to the philosophical way of life distinctively theological content that sets it apart rather drastically. And you actually see this with some of these exercises, Brandon, that I've been talking about, and how even the idea of a spiritual exercise was, was transposed into a higher Christian key when some of these early Christians began to talk about spiritual exercises, right? And I, I say in the book, these, these non-Christian classical thinkers had no conception of, of grace, right? Um, they had a very optimistic view of the self's ability to transform the self and the power of the self. And I, I think w- when you're sort of bringing theological content to these spiritual exercises, you realize you know, these exercises will will fall flat and will bring about no lasting and deep human transformation apart from being energized and sustained by divine grace. So um, those are all sort of those theological tenets about sin, about redemption, about regeneration, about the, the triune God's good purposes for humans to, to be in relationship with him. Those are all shaping the, the the kind of the structure, the contour of a Christian, distinctively Christian, uh, philosophical way of life. So I want, I just want to encourage uh, Christian philosophers out there. Um, you know, you you cannot leave behind distinctively Christian theological tenets uh, when you're doing Christian philosophy, right? It, it's sort okay. of it's sort of the superstructure upon which the Christian philosopher. Uh, goes about their task, right? Um, so uh, I think there's a there's an integral connection here. There's a lot to say on this question. Uh, I fear that I I, I um, uh, it would it would uh, take me far too afield to to sort of follow all these sidetracks. But I would just say that's one thing in terms of one way that the 
theology is influencing, it's guiding, it's governing, it's constraining a Christian philosophical way of life uh, by delineating the content as distinctively Christian, as well as the prospects of these exercises actually shaping and, and transforming the human soul in the image of Christ on its own power, right? On its own steam. It simply cannot, right? On the, on the Christian story. So uh, does that make sense? Does that help at all? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that is a big, that's a big part of it. I was thinking you brought up Justin, uh, you know, Justin says in his dialogue about, you know, uh, when I believe, you know, sort of uh, platonic philosophy or, or whatever, I'm not going to get, you know, that more technically than I do, but generally speaking, this kind of platonic philosophy that he's, he's bought into, he says, you know, I expected to immediately gaze upon God whenever I, uh, I thought this was the height, like, this is it. He says, and then one day, you know, he encounters a stranger on the road and he says, like in dialogue seven, you know, I heard the gospel. I think it's dialogue seven. He says, you know, I heard the gospel and and I had this overwhelming affection for the prophets and the friends of Christ. And I realized that this is the only true uh, and useful philosophy. And what he means there, right, is uh, it it answers the deepest longings of his heart. He actually knows God, sees God and affects the way he lives in a meaningful way. So I think that's where you're talking about this idea of you know, theology and, and the Bible actually informing your philosophy. You got him in, in the dialogue, you know, arguing on the one end about uh, how the Bible fits together and how Christ is the sort of answer to the the Jews, you know, longing for a savior. And then in his apologies, he turns around and he's like, yeah, well, you know, uh, yeah, Mercury, he announced the word of God, Jupiter's son suffered, you know, there's some stuff that sounds similar, but Christ is their superior. Well, why is that? Because of the way that he uh, make sense of reality, make sense of the world, these kind of things, you know? So I think Justin's such a great example of somebody who, uh, philosophy, quote unquote, you know, without any sort of Christian theological, uh, content didn't do a whole lot for him in the broad scheme of things, right? It became very practical when he understood the gospel. Mm -hmm. So I always remind my students of that, or, or was it its origin? I think it's when it's in Contra Celsus where he, uh, talks about how uh, the way that you know Christianity is the true philosophy is that it's you know intellectually rigorous enough to stand with any philosoph philosophical system, and yet simple enough for you know an uneducated person to believe. He says, you know, it's a true philosophy because it, it everybody can believe it. Mm -hmm. And I think you're you're doing a lot of really good things there with this book of sort of saying that this isn't something out there, but it's something that is in the in the longing of every human heart. You know, um, regardless of who you are where you're from, what era of time you live in, whatever, you know, the, and this is how, uh, as you said, the Christian tradition, this is how they viewed it, right? The, the philosophy is answering the deepest longings of our heart uh, and, and answering the questions about reality. So, yeah. And, and I just can't emphasize enough how that is so foreign and alien to the way that many of us approach the study of philosophy. I mean, it, not just today, but, um, you know, there's this great quote from Seneca in his moral epistles. He says, uh, I think there is no one who has rendered worse service to the human race than those who have learned philosophy as a mercenary trade. Mm. And this idea of learning philosophy as a mercenary uh, trade, as a way of sort of intellectually dominating over others or winning a particular intellectual argument or whatnot, right? And it, yeah. it's there's just a way of being in, enculturated into the philosophical guild, unfortunately, that can actually uh, drive us away from seeing how philosophy is, is deeply integrated and interwoven into the ordinary rhythms of human life. Um, how one can be doing philosophy by drinking hemlock 
um, as Plutarch says about Socrates, right? He's mm-hmm. doing philosophy by all, by, by basically uh, demonstrating his ultimate priorities isn't just to, to maintain a pulse, but it's to die for things that he believes to be true and good, good and weighty, right? Um, so, or even with joking with one's friends, right? Um, Plutarch says, that is it, you're living philosophically, right? Um, so there's like, I think... W- my aim in the book is just to just to introduce people to a fuller, uh, more well-rounded understanding of philosophy. That's not to exclude like technical, careful, intellectual rigor, and even um, getting into the nitty-gritty and using logic and these sorts of things. I think that's actually part of uh, a kind of spiritual exercise that can be deeply formative uh, for human beings. So it's more of a a way of um. This book is a small book is a polemic really against uh, narrowing and constricting philosophy down to um, a, something that's so irrelevant to human life. Who would want to bother, you know, wasting their time studying it, let alone majoring in it? And I, I mentioned this in the book, but I just thought I'd mention. I think you'd get a kick out of this. But um, perfect example of this. I mentioned in 2015, Florida Center Marco Rubio. Uh, made uh, made this comment in a, uh, a a presidential debate, I believe it was. He says, "Welders make more money than philosophers. We need more welders and less philosophers." Mm. And <laughs> that kind of that kind of statement coming from a senator of the United States is is just indicative of how I think of philosophy's public relations problem. I will say though, to his defense, he later came back. Uh, in 2018, and uh, posted on uh, formerly known as Twitter, he said this, I made fun of philosophy. He's repented. He's recanted, Brandon. He said, mm-hmm. I made fun of philosophy, but then I was challenged to, to study it. So I started reading the Stoics. I've changed my view of philosophy, Rubio says, but not on welders. We need both. <laughs> Vocational training for workers and philosophers to make sense of the world. There you go. It's a little bit of trying to help people understand, like, maybe there's a different way of understanding philosophy in the philosophical life that's that can help offer a way forward for philosophy's relevance to being human. Yeah. 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 It's, uh, yeah, I even think about just, you know, being in the university life and thinking about the, the way that philosophy was so integral to sort of classical university, Christian included. And thinking about how it, it even has bad PR in its own, I mean, not just among like your know, average person, or by the way, I think it's really funny if a politician doesn't like philosophy, it's like, you know how much better you'd actually be at that if you had some <laughs> philosophy in your life. Um, but uh, but even thinking about it, even in our own settings, you know, like even evangelicalism, philosophy has its own sort of, it gets a bad rap, you know, sometimes because, you know, frankly, some evangelical philosophers go astray theologically. In different ways, or maybe they just think philosophy is just apologetics, right? So it's just about YouTube debates. It's not really any, anything more than that. And so it's not really about the Bible. It's just about these esoteric debates and, and conversations about cosmology or, you know, there's just all these ways that that happens. And, and I'm thinking a lot about, you know, kind of even in the university life, how do, how do we make sure that we're keeping whether somebody, whatever trade somebody's going for, engineering, nursing, whatever, or, uh, you know, in your setting in a seminary, you're going you're gonna to go pastor, you may not go get a PhD in philosophy. Thinking about how much the sort of philosophical, uh, even the tradition and just the ideas and thoughts, how much that affects the welder and the professor, right? I mean, how, how much that's deeply 
intertwined. So like I, I keep thinking about just let's keep fighting for keeping philosophy in basic curriculum uh, so that everybody gets introduced to these ideas. Because as you said, these ideas really are uh, the sort of bedrock questions that humanity is asking. Right. And, and theolo- theology and scripture, of course, come alongside that and in some ways even fill it out in properly Christian ways. But it doesn't mean that it's not important. It doesn't mean we skip it to get there. So uh, now I'm just rambling and I'm defending philosophy for you. But, you know, I'm teaching, Amen. teaching, a, I'm teaching a CT1 class and, uh, you know, here, a Trinity class here at Cedarville. I'm just thinking uh, they get philosophy here. And we have great philosophers here, by the way. You know, you know, J.R. Uh, Gilhooley. And uh, we have Josh Kier here as well, uh, great philosophers and just thinking, man, some of them for the first time are getting that here, you know, uh, or uh, in my Trinity class, I'm doing a lot of heavy lifting to kind of get them caught up because I'm like, man, if you want to understand this deeply, there's some stuff in the tradition you need to know first, you know? So anyway, there's just, I think of the million ways philosophy could be helpful. So that's why I want people to read this book, Ross. That's why I'm, I'm uh, hoping it shoots its way straight up to number one on the New York Times bestseller list. <laughs> <laughs> Don't hold your breath. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, thanks for writing it. Uh, thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks for your friendship. Um, hopefully, uh, this gives people a little bit of a taste so they can go get it. So I'll put a link, as always, uh, in the show notes for people to go get it. Uh, so thanks for your time. I know you got a lot of other things to be doing, but I appreciate it. Brandon, thank you, man. I appreciate it. Thank you for your time. And um, I'm grateful for you, man. 